Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Hello and welcome. Thank you for joining us for Therapeutic Thursday's podcast. This podcast provides an opportunity to listen in as members sit down to discuss what's new and ongoing in the world of therapeutics. I am Megan Musselman, a clinical pharmacy specialist in emergency medicine at North Kansas City Hospital, and I will be your moderator today. If you are an ASHP member, you will also have an opportunity to earn continuing education for listening to this podcast. Stay tuned to the end of this podcast for more information. Our topic for today's podcast is surrounding pain management with the use of non-opioid agents entitled, A Little Dab Should Do It, Alternatives to Opioids. Today, I'll be chatting with Jenny Kale and Norman Pillsbury. Jenny is an emergency medicine clinical specialist at Massachusetts General Hospital, and Norman is a clinical pharmacist at HCA Florida Ocala Health. Thanks for joining us today. So to get started, let's discuss the development of ALTO programs, how they're becoming more prevalent in practice, and what are the advantages of avoiding initiation of opioids. Dr. Kale? Sure. Thanks for having us, Megan. Um, And I'd love to jump in with this. So really the overarching concept and advantage is that people are really dying of opioid overdoses every day. And the concern is that opioid abuse sometimes does begin with prescribed products in medical care. Um, And multimodal pain management, uh, as you said, uses alternatives to opioids to prevent the initial exposure that might lead to this abuse. Uh, And multimodal pain management is now being used not only in ambulatory patients, but also in the perioperative setting as well as inpatient settings. And so in place of the opioids, we're utilizing agents like non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, acetaminophen, gabapentinoids, NMDA antagonists, alpha-2 antagonists, and sodium and calcium channel blocking agents, which I will go more in depth into their use um, later on in this podcast. But these can really be as effective for the relief of pain when used in combination as they target different pain pathways while reducing the adverse effects associated with the opioids including just to name a few, tolerance, abuse, diversion, um, the chance of respiratory depression, things of that sort. Uh, In addition, there are other non-pharmacologic modalities that have also demonstrated usefulness. Norm, do you want to talk about some of these uh, non-pharm options? Sure, thank you. Uh, One non-pharmacological alternative to opioids is physical therapy. One study indicated that if physical therapy is used within three months of a pain diagnosis, such as knee, shoulder, or lower back pain, patients would be less likely to use opioids in the months after the injury. In this study, patients who used opioids and had early physical therapy demonstrated a 10% reduction in the risk of long-term opioid use. Another non-pharmacological alternative is mindfulness meditation. In one study, after four days of mindfulness meditation, Training, meditating in the presence of noxious stimulation significantly reduced pain unpleasantness by 57% and pain intensity ratings by 40% as compared to rest. Wow, these are all really great advantages. Norm, are there any additional advantages that go beyond what you have already mentioned? Yes, uh, optimizing pain management improves health-related quality of life and may prevent the development of chronic pain. One study of pain and quality of life in geriatric patients demonstrated that there were significant differences in health-related quality of life 
between those reporting pain and those who did not report pain. This was assessed using the Nottingham Health Profile. Chronic pain is linked to maladaptive mechanisms that occur when acute pain persists beyond the expected time frame for resolution and recovery from tissue injury. This persistence becomes the bridge from acute to chronic pain. Well, thank you for that. I like hearing all the advantages of Alto. Jenny, how do you identify and assist these patients? Sure. So uh, these patients are really those who present to either the emergency room, urgent care centers, or primary care settings uh, within a healthcare system. And we identify them by them um, describing that they're having pain syndromes, and then we perform a pain assessment. And depending on the severity of pain, the type of pain, we determine if they are eligible for opioid agents or if non-opioid agents would be most effective. Um, the Joint Commission actually has requirements governing this pain assessment. Uh, in chapters of their leadership, medical staff, provision of care, treatment and services, as well as performance improvement. And so once these patients are identified, um, we will assist them by using multimodal pain management strategies and educating them on the benefits of all of these various agents. An ALTO program or the alternative to opioid program can significantly reduce opioid use without having a negative impact on patient experience by really involving this education and bi-directional um, conversations within the assessment. Those all sound like great things, but I know sometimes in my emergency department, prescribers still feels that the opioids are necessary to treat their patient. Have you guys developed any methods to limit the use of opioids in this case? Norman? Sure, opioids are sometimes a reasonable option for the treatment of pain, but they must be used with caution. For example, opioids might be prescribed for an acute onset of pain, such as due to a traumatic injury, but even in cases like this, they should be used for a short a period of time as possible. It would make sense to tell patients something like, quote, these are to be used for only 72 hours, after which you should begin to do this, end of quote. Um, yeah, so as I was kind of talking about earlier, we really use the synergism of a multimodal analgesia to take advantage of the different mechanisms of action when we do co-administer different agents along with opioids that really help lower the doses of our opioids as well as reduce adverse effects um, and increase our nociception. So the agents that we typically will um, add to potential opioids are our non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, or as we call them, NSAIDs. And typically these include celecoxib, ibuprofen, indomethacin, catorolac, naproxen. And how these work is that they block the COX enzymes and reduce prostaglandin um, synthesis, which, is redu which does reduce the inflammation, pain, and fever. Uh, secondarily, acetaminophen uh, may work centrally in inhibiting the COX pathway as well in the central nervous system. So we often combine acetaminophen with our NSAIDs. Uh, gabapentinoids are classed as calcium channel blockers, but their mechanism is uh, um, somewhat poorly understood. However, the effects of gabapentinoids may uh, be attributed to depression of the dorsal horn sensitivity through a, multi uh, a multitude of different mechanisms. And then the NMD antagonist uh, that I talked about earlier either bind directly to the glutamate site of the NMDA receptor to inhibit the action of glutamate or block the NMD-associated ion channel. Uh, the alpha-2 agonist will stimulate the alpha-2 receptors in the dorsal horn of the spinal column, inhibiting nociceptive neurons and reducing the release of substance P. 
They may also have peripheral sites of action. And uh, sometimes uh, we forget about our topical and transdermal agents, but these are highly effective in different types of pain, like lidocaine patches and diclofenac gel. They allow for local application of the anal analgesic effect with reduction in potential systemic adverse effects as they have limited absorption. And I always like to remind providers that the 5% topical prescription preparation of lidocaine is not commonly covered by prescription insurance as it's only FDA approved for post-herpetic neuralgia, but there are over-the-counter products such as the 4% strength that does have similar directions for use and efficacy. And so when we combine any of these alternatives with opioids, we reduce the dose and or duration of the therapy of opioids However, we must keep in mind that some of these medications, particularly the gabapentinoids, they do take a several, uh, a couple weeks to uptitrate them to effective doses. And so they might require a short course or overlap with the opioids. Wow, Jenny, these all sound like great options. Are there certain types of pain that you would select different agents? Sure. Yeah, there's uh, several different types of pain that we can target utilizing specific agents. Uh, I usually say for acute musculoskeletal pain, radicular low back pain, or renal colic, we recommend starting with around-the-clock NSAIDs and Tylenol, uh, alternating the times if appropriate for the patient, but we always want them around the clock so that the patient does get continued pain control um, overnight. But keep in mind that all NSAIDs do have an analgesic ceiling dose, which is lower than the anti-inflammatory maximal dose. So when the ceiling dose is met, additional increases in the dose don't really provide further analgesic benefit. And so the reported ceiling doses for aspirin and Tylenol are 1,000 milligrams. Uh, for ibuprofen, it's 400 milligrams. And then for IV Ketorolac, um, the studies have shown 10 milligrams to be the ceiling limit, but typically in practice, we'll use 15 milligrams as our ceiling. Yet I do wanna remind you that higher doses may be needed to achieve additional anti-inflammatory benefits. So if you think that the pain is truly coming from um, inflammation using higher doses, such as 30 milligrams of Ketorolac might be um, beneficial. Topical lidocaine is, effective, is also effective for musculoskeletal pain, as well as IV lidocaine has shown benefits in renal colic. Uh, skeletal muscle relaxants are often utilized for lower back pain but these agents are divided into two categories with anti-spastic agents like baclofen. These target the CNS spasticity and anti-spasmodic agents like carsoprodol or known as soma and cyclobenzaprine. Those target the musculoskeletal conditions as spasticity, as spasticity and spasms are distinct etiologies that we must keep in mind. And each condition should be treated with the most appropriate agents. Ketamine is also a great analgesic agent, and for pain, we use it as at sub-dissociative dosing of 0.1 to 0.3 milligrams per kilogram as a single dose. Um, and we typically do run the dose over 15 minutes so that patients don't experience any kind of of the neuro side effects that you can if you give it IV bolus. Or you could do 0.15 milligrams per kilogram per hour as a continuous infusion. Um, and this really is a, a agent of choice in the setting of intractable pain, neuropathic pain, or if the patient has opioid tolerance or hyperalgesia due to opioids. At these lower doses, ketamine acts at the NMDA receptor as an antagonist in the brain and spinal cord, as well as a partial mu receptor agonist. And finally, the gabapentinoids. So gabapentin and pregabalin are effective treatments for post-herpetic neuralgia 
phantom limb pain, peripheral neuropathy, and pain caused by nerve compression. There is a common misconception that these agents alter GABA uptake and degradation. However, they are actually inactive at the GABA-A and GABA-B receptors and aren't converted metabolically into GABA or a GABA antagonist either. Gabapin and pergabalin do have similar binding sites on presynaptic voltage-gated voltage calcium channels that are located throughout the peripheral and the central nervous systems. And although gabapentin and pergabalin have the same pharmacologic profile, the binding affinity for the subunit and potency of gabapentin is six times more than that of gabapentin. Additionally, gabapentin has variable inter-individual bioavailability and satural oral absorption. And this really means that the bioavailability decreases as the dose increases. And so it's best to increase the frequency of dosing rather than the actual dose itself. Um, and pregabalin does have more predictable linear pharmacokinetic profile in that it's not saturable. So always keep in mind that these agents do take a few weeks to uptitrate and to reach an effective dose, as I said earlier. And so you shouldn't expect kind of immediate pain management with the gabapentinoids. That is really great information. Thank you. But this has me thinking, you know, with the majority of states having a prescription drug monitoring program, the PDMP, how can this program assist the pharmacist in providing pharmaceutical evaluation and care? Norm? PDMPs are helpful state-level databases that improve opioid prescribing, inform clinical practice, and protect patients at risk. Here you will discover your patient's history of the use of controlled substance prescriptions. This will be helpful to inform you if you are dealing with a chronic pain patient or an opioid naive patient. It will also disclose if there is doctor shopping or any other behaviors occurring that might contribute to a possible opioid overdose. However, be aware of what states your PDMP reports out for as it is often not nationwide, resulting in prescription information being missed. That's good advice, thank you. Jenny, are there any techniques we can use to mitigate the stigma associated with opioid use? Yes, of course. I think one of the easiest things and something that we often forget that reduces the stigma is really changing the language that we use around um, this disease state. So addressing patients as having substance use disorder rather than it being called addicts is definitely one strategy. This kind of medicalizes the disorder and makes it easier for patients to seek a solution within the healthcare system. Um, addressing substance use as a treatable condition also reduces the negative social distancing that may occur when the quote unquote addiction is seen as untreatable. Studies have demonstrated that there is increased stigma associated with obtaining opioids illegally rather than within the course of medical treatment. So pharmacists can really help patients by speaking in terms of the substance use disorder rather than emphasizing the precipitating factors. As pharmacists, we're also we're versed in medications used to treat opioid use disorders, and we're able to accurately discuss the successes of these medications and offer further treatment information if the patient does desire. Thank you for that. Norm, what is the role of compassion in these conversations and decisions? Compassion-focused therapy has been investigated in the treatment of opioid use disorder. Such self-compassion may be particularly beneficial in opioid use disorder, as external substances may be used as a compensatory mechanism to evoke positive emotions that had not been previously experienced due to various forms of childhood adversity. Compassion from the pharmacist and other providers 
helps us to feel that we can make a difference in the lives of those we treat. Jennifer S. Potter, PhD, MPH, Vice Dean for Research and Professor of Psychiatry in the Joe R. and Teresa Lozano Long School of Medicine at UT Health San Antonio, is considered a national expert on opioid use and opioid use disorder. She says, quote, we need compassion. Compassion is more than feeling sorry for someone. It is tolerating what we find to be uncomfortable, and it is taking action. Sometimes I think we have become so desensitized to suffering that we think we cannot make a difference or that it is not our problem, not my kid, not my problem, end of quote. Norman, thank you for that quote. That is really impactful and something we all can learn from. Just to finish out, starting with Norm and then moving to Jenny, are there any programs available that can assist in opioid harm reduction? Sure. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration issued a drug safety communication July the 3rd of 2020 titled FDA recommends healthcare professionals discuss naloxone with all patients when prescribing opioid pain relievers or medicines to treat opioid use disorder. Consider prescribing naloxone to those at increased risk of opioid overdose. Healthcare professionals should discuss the availability of naloxone with all patients who are prescribed opioid pain relievers. Prescribing naloxone should be considered for those who are at increased risk of opioid overdose, such as those who are also using benzodiazepines or other central nervous system depressants. It should also be prescribed for those with a history of opioid use disorder and those who have experienced a previous opioid overdose. It should also be considered if the patient has household members who are at risk for accidental ingestion or opioid overdose, including children. Yeah, I think naloxone is incredibly important and um, working in the emergency department, we provide it to all of our patients who are at risk for um, opioid overdose or opioid abuse. Um, I'll also add that outpatient opioid de-escalation programs are also incredibly helpful to reduce harm. Um, opioid tapering is very important for several reasons. The first and most obvious is to avoid opioid withdrawal that may occur with too rapid of a taper or just um, stopping use altogether. The second is to give the patient time to adjust to new medication doses, both physically and psychologically. Um, not all patients do require opioid tapers. It really is um, dose dependent, duration dependent, and uh, dependent on physical personal factors. But this is something that we should always keep in mind. Uh, we do have a separate Therapeutic Thursday podcast surrounding opioid escalation. So I really do urge you to listen into that one if you are interested in more of the specifics of these programs. This concludes our Therapeutic Thursday podcast. I want to thank our guests, Jenny and Norm, for a great topic and discussion. For our ASHP members, you can find additional resources and earn free continuing education credit by visiting elearning.ashp.org forward slash podcast and use the CE code 22046A. Again, that is 22046A. Please note that credit for this podcast expires two years after the date this podcast is published. Finally, if you haven't before, I encourage you all to check out ASHP's clinical resources. You can find member exclusive offerings such as resource centers, including those on ambulatory care, critical care, nutrition support, opioid management, infectious diseases, and more. 
Other offerings include the Credentialing and Privileging Resource Center, the Preceptor Toolkit, and forums such as the ASHP Connect Communities, where you can exchange ideas and post questions with your peers. If you have enjoyed today's episode, be sure to subscribe to ASHP Official through your favorite podcast provider, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.